Blog Talk Radio. Dr. Ross Green here, coming to you live from the offices of Lives in the Balance here in Portland, Maine. Time for another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students, the last one of this school year. Uh, And I am joined by, I believe, Tom Ambrose. Tom, is that you? It is. And I believe I am joined by Susan McQuaig, but I'm not positive about that one. Susan, is that you? Yes, it is. Outstanding. Um, Welcome to the program, both of you. How are you both? Good. Good, Very good. good. Life good in British Columbia and up in central Maine today? Yes. Good. British Columbia, anyways. Use a little more snow, but I'm living. Uh, (laughs) Dude, dude, that season is over. Over. <laughs> You're going to have to find yourself a summertime sport. Mountain yes. biking. I'm in. Mountain biking. There you go. You can still be on a mountain, um, and you won't mm-hmm. be as cold. It's perfect. <laughs> so we have a bunch of uh, emails to respond to here that have come in since our last program, but is there anything you both wanted to start with today? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good, too. Susan? Yeah. All right. Yeah, good. This is an interesting one. I think you guys are going to sink your teeth into this one. Here we go. And before (laughs) we do, I want to make sure that people know that Lives in the Balance has two school mental health conferences coming up in Canada over the next two weeks. It is still not too late, I don't believe, to sign up. Um, You can get on the Lives in the Balance website and find the workshops section and um, find the link. One is in Toronto. This Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, a dynamite lineup. The other is in Saskatoon next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So that is May 3rd, 4th, and 5th, and May 10th, 11th, and 12th. If you don't want to miss it, um, sign up now. Here is an email that I think you're both going to sink your teeth into, and um, let's see what you think. This one says, Uh, I have attended your advanced training for the last two years. By the way, for those who are interested, we have one of those coming up in Portland, Maine this summer. Read your last three books, viewed several resources on the Lives in the Balance website, and listened to many of your podcasts. Thank you for the work you have done and shared with educators. We have been implementing the model in our school with a core group and have helped a student to look as if he belongs in our building. We look forward to working collaboratively with other students to assist them in solving their unsolved problems. There are some current practices in education that cause me dissonance in regards to your model. My question for you is, in regards to the current movement in education towards alternate seating and alternate workplaces in the classroom, what are your thoughts as it relates to how they align with the CPS model? Also, When a student is having difficulty sitting in the chair in the classroom or having difficulty keeping their hands to themselves, they are often referred to an occupational therapist. The OT often prescribes alternate seating, such as a wobbly stool, 
move and sit cushion, or exercise ball along with a fidget toy. I'm also looking for your thoughts in regards to these OT recommendations and whether they would be considered acceptable if the child offers them as a solution during a Plan B discussion instead of when they are adult imposed. So that's the end of the email. I have a feeling the gist of this question is that a lot of interventions in schools that are aimed at being helpful are nonetheless adult-imposed. Um, and so I'm going to let you guys go first here. What, what do you think of how current practices, uh, especially the ones that this writer described, are consistent or not with the CPS model? What do you think? Uh, well, for me, they're not consistent because they are adult-imposed. And we have lots of therapists that come into our school, whether it's OT or PT or whatever, and they come in and they do impose these ones on behaviorally challenged children. Like, I, I totally understand if it's a medical issue and the OT comes in or the PT comes in and says these are things that will help the child learn. But when it's a behaviorally challenged child, I do believe, and I agree with her, that it needs to be coming from the child as a solution that you work together on. Because otherwise we're just adding on things for the teacher to do or see. And it really makes, I think it just makes it difficult for the child because they have no say in it at all. But we do have children here who choose to sit on a wiggly seat because they know that's an option. We do have children that choose to wear um, sort of noise-canceling headphones too, but they, they know that they're available to them. It's not something that we have imposed on them because I, I have lots in my office and kids will often say, hey, I see you know, so-and-so wearing these headphones. I'd like to try that because it will help me focus. Oh, okay, well, let's take a look at that. What would that look like? So I would agree with her. I think if it's adult imposed, it makes it really, it takes it away from the child to help with the solution making. Tom? I couldn't agree more. That, no, she she hit it right on the head. That's It's really all about relationships, and if it's, an adult is telling a child to do something to solve the problem, then it's not building the capacity for them to be included in the in the process of creating the solution, and that's really a key ingredient to building their self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Well, let me offer a slightly different view. It depends, I think, a little bit on how it's phrased to the kid and how it's presented to the kid. Mm -hmm. If it's presented as an option that they have the right to reject, I don't think of it, to, that it, I don't think of it as an imposed solution. And I also know that it's not often done that way. If it's presented as an option, because a lot of kids don't know what would help when it relates to things that an occupational therapist would do. So occupational therapists, like lots of specialists, have lots of ideas for what might help solve a particular problem. And that's a repertoire that many kids don't have. And so the fact that the occupational therapist or another specialist has... Um, options in their bag of tricks, if you will, or in their repertoire. That part doesn't mm -hmm. concern me. It's when they come in and say, this is the way it must be, that is where the solution is being imposed. If they are saying, here are a variety of potential options that might help you with that, 
Don't know if that still counts as adult imposed. And of course, the other consideration, and if, especially if the kid has the right and uh, to say, it's not going to work for me. But mm-hmm. I think that the most important piece is that in many instances, there's a uh, sort of um, boilerplate. Um, if you have this problem, here's the solution to it. And um, so it's very algorithmic. And what doesn't happen when we have an algorithm in place is nobody's asking the kid what's really hard for them about this problem, what's getting in their way, what's tough about it. And so, once again, we are blindly even proposing solutions, not, not necessarily even imposing, but proposing solutions with no real knowledge of what's really getting in the way for the kid. And so, yes, I think that if we word it as a proposal rather than an imposed solution, we're in better mm-hmm. shape, but we are in the best shape of all if we are gathering information from the kid about what's making the expectation hard for them. Those are my thoughts. I think Nina has joined us. Nina, is that you? That is me. Hello. Oh, my goodness. We're, we're hitting <laughs> on all cylinders today. I don't think Callen, uh, Carol's going to be able to join us today. She's got something else going on. But how often do we get three of you on this program? I'm in heaven. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> what do you guys think of that? I, I think, I think that's much. Sense. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, the only thing that I would add is here, what happens is we have uh, an OT or PT come in uh, at the request of a parent, and they'll come in and then they'll write a report. And in the report, it goes to both the parent and me, and it's stated that these are things that we need to do. So then we're kind of behind the eight ball to begin with, rather than talking about it together and with the child. And so what happens is we have the parent come in sort of, fighting for, well, we need to have these things happening in the classroom or my sons are not going to be successful, whereas we haven't had an opportunity to talk about what's getting in their way. And so it's kind of done in a bit of a backward situation rather than having an ICM where we all sit around and we talk about what's going on and then have them come in and do uh, an observation and then chat with the child uh, in a CPS sort of way where the child has an opportunity to give some insight um, it's more of a top-down decision, and then I'm stuck because I'm right. stuck mm-hmm. behind this therapist and then a parent who's saying, thou shalt, because this is what my therapist says. That's the part where I'm coming from. And that's pretty common. Um, is it? The question always is, well, I think it's not uncommon for, in general for adults to get an expert to say, here's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um but the person who's left out of the loop on that is the kid, right? Yes. And, you know, I would call that uh, a blind solution, a shot in the dark, if you will, the shotgun approach to uh, solving problems, because um, we really don't know enough about what's getting in the kid's way and haven't involved the kid either in letting us know or in trying to come up with solutions. So that's why proposals rather than imposed solutions are better but if yeah. either of them are blind, then none of them are going to work. Right, because they don't meet the needs of both of both parties. Mm-hmm. Well, it only meets the needs they, of the adult. We don't know anything right? about what's getting in the kid's way. How can we possibly right. address the kid's concerns if we don't know what they are? Yeah. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nina, do you want to weigh in on this? Uh, no, I mean, I, th- I didn't hear the very beginning, but I think what everyone's saying makes 
total sense that you know having knowing the concerns is the most important part, but also having um, you know options and as long as you're phrasing it as a here's a proposal and not a um, a have to makes a lot of sense to me. Shall we move on to another? Sure. This one says, I am a mental health rehabilitation specialist for a nonprofit mental health organization that works in a high school. I am working to implement CPS in my program, and I have created a training that I show my staff members. One question that came up is what to do with kids who do not care. I responded with, kids do well if they can. Many of my staff firmly believe that many of the students do not care, are in a state of apathy, and they feel helpless and discouraged. I'm not sure in that sense who feels helpless and discouraged. I encourage them to continue to solve problems and teach skills and do our best. I was wondering if you have any advice for us. So who wants to go first on that one? Kids who say they don't care and staff who believe them, are there really kids who don't care? What do we do with kids who don't care? Who wants to take a stab at that one? Um, I think all kids care. I think you just need to take the time to figure it out. And if we don't give the time, then we don't, we're not offering the kid the, the right to let us know. I, I know that we've got lots of kids who say, I don't care, right off the bat. I don't care. I don't care. But if that's all you're going to take and not sort of sit back and then try and use different questioning techniques or a different way to come alongside them and, and chat with them in a different way, it doesn't, it's about building the relationships, as, as Tom says. If, if you don't have that, it's easy to shrug a shoulder and say, I don't care. I think you just need to put in the time, and the time is what matters. Uh, yeah. What do the other two of you think? Nina, go ahead. Um, well, I, just, I think that's kind of a common thing where sometimes people spend a lot of time trying to talk about the, you know, the kids that care and the kids that don't care or the kids who choose this behavior and the kids who really can't help it. And, um, you know, I try to say if we're going to do this model, um, you know, changing your lenses is, is key and it, and you do as much training as you can if you need more training to get those lenses changed. But then sometimes you just need to agree that you're going to try this approach and um, get, you know, doing the LSEPs together as a team. It really does start to, even if you're not quite all the way there, it starts to change your lens even more. And being in that empathy step with Plan B, um, you start to see that all kids care and that, that you're gathering information, you're remaining curious, and you as a staff decide that this is the approach we're going to take, um, even if you're not, even if everyone's not 100% on board, and then you slowly will get there. I think if you get stuck in trying to convince everyone that all kids um, care, then you might never get to that next step. So sometimes you have to agree as a staff, you know, this is what we're going to do. You know, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I, Tom? Yeah, and I, I think that, yeah, well, Motivation's tricky, and I think that uh, to be fair to some of the teachers too, in the in the, uh, I know that my counterparts would probably agree with this. It's it's very hard when you've had uh, we've seen a progression over the last ten years of apathy with kids, um, and I think that it is easier to say, you know, the kid doesn't care and they're not doing anything and it's their problem than it is to look at ourselves and own that we could do something differently to try to do something about it. And I think that a lot of times when we 
when we sit down with the kid and say, hey, you know, I noticed that, that for whatever reason, um, writing class just isn't, you know, isn't working for you. Or I noticed today when you were writing that, that you really had trouble getting started if you need to be more specific. Um, just opening the door that way sets a tone of respect and trust that can only lead to better things. So I don't always – I just like to shelve the idea that, that I don't know if the kid's doing it because they want to or not, and, and I assume that kids do well if they can. But what else are you going to do, just blame them and not do anything? I don't know. So so I guess part of it for me is convincing people that, that, that going for it's better than than not going for it. But another part of it is that, that um, I think that some training and, and doing some reading about – about you know the work in, in 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 all of your books, Ross, really helps people to change that lens. So what we did as a staff is start out by having everybody on the staff read the book and at least be educated about the model before having the conversation, so that even folks who had concerns or questions about whether or not kids do well if they can, I think it really makes a difference if you have that background before you have the conversation. And I agree with all of that. I think there are kids who say, I don't care, reflexively, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes because they think they're about to get into trouble, sometimes because they are perhaps being a little defensive in um, ad, uh, admitting, I'm not sure I love the word, but acknowledging wrongdoing or that they have somehow disappointed But I actually do think there are kids for whom I don't care actually does come closer to the mark about where they're at. I think that there are kids who have been so marginalized and so disenfranchised and who are so accustomed to having their concerns be dismissed and who Mm -hmm. um, have become accustomed to not experiencing Mm -hmm. success um, and who are accustomed to being in trouble a lot, that there is a numbing effect that takes place mm-hmm. where they no longer believe that um, doing well is in the cards for them, don't think it's possible, don't think that adults are going to be able to help them do well. And for them, I don't care, actually comes closer to a statement of their reality. Um, now, what I would say is that when I, find, when I see the mentality of the CPS model being applied, when I see um, the practices being applied, even kids who I feel I don't care is, a pretty, is pretty close to the mark start to show that they care again. Nothing like having your concerns heard and addressed to give you hope that there's reason to care again. But I think that I don't care for way too many kids is um, close to the mark for them mm-hmm. in terms of their experience of life. And then, of course, if you don't care and you don't feel like you're, you have any potential for a positive outcome, well, then you don't care about a lot of things that you could do that would be self-damaging. Um, and I think there's actually a meaningful number of kids out there who are like that, which is why I think it's so important to be collaborating with kids and making sure that their voices are heard and that their concerns are being addressed as early as possible. I think the more we do that, the less we hear bona fide, I don't care. And I I, I think I have to just say that I love the compassion 
that you just expressed by recognizing that the kid is just telling you where they're at. Mm -hmm. I don't care. I'm done. And I think we have all felt that. If you think hard enough about your life in a time when you were trying to do something really well and it wasn't working out and you kind of gave up, I, everyone has felt I, – I, for me, it's like gardening, right? Like I'm horrible at gardening. <laughs> and I'll just be like, I don't care. Put them in. Tell me where you want them. Yes, dear. You know what I mean? It mm -hmm. just gets – so so everybody has their thing, and I'm just kind of – thank you, Ross. Bring a little way light to, to the subject. If you to garden down a mountain, you'd be fine. Hey, yeah, right, man. Like it'd be like Mario Brothers, right? Plot, plan as you mm -hmm. go, throw the plants. Um, so no, go. I think that, that for me, it, it really is. Yeah, exactly. So it's really all about speed and intensity. No, uh, I, I just, I just want to think about the kid being honest with where they're at. And there's a difference between saying what I heard Ross is. There's a difference between saying I don't care and feeling defeated and not being able to actually do something. And I think a lot of times, kids end up with an IEP and in special ed because they they have lagging skills and unsolved problems instead of solving the problems. And that really comes down to the and skills of the adults. That's right. To facilitate and an IEP, that. the way most IEPs are written and the process by which they're arrived at, it is a mostly imposed set of solutions. And if you're still not doing well with those imposed solutions. I mean, adults think that, you know, adults, let's say, have the best of intentions. They think they're doing what's right for the kid. They've just never consulted with the kid. The kid's voice hasn't been heard. We really don't know what we're trying to address with the kid. Um, if you're imposing solutions and the kid's voice is not heard and the kid's concerns are not addressed and therefore the solution doesn't work, and if you repeat that dozens and dozens of times across a kid's childhood, there's absolutely right. no reason to be surprised that you're hearing I don't care come out of the kid's mouth. Right. Right. We and, have a and, and I think that goes back to habits. Oh, great. From area code 908, you are on the air. Tell us what's on your mind today. Hi, this is Megan. Um, I am a behavior consultant in um, Don't tell an us area where. That, Don't tell okay, us where. in an area that you just came to speak recently. So, um, Good. That so could be I've almost been... anywhere, but keep going. <laughs> exactly. So I'm following the rules. Um, so I went on to the website, and I've um, been, you know, reading a little bit more and, and of course, trying to um, include some people into the resources um, and recently sent some resources to a school principal for uh, an upcoming meeting for a student. Um, so I'm just – my background is um, in ABA, um, and where I'm at now is how to use that in what, I, what I'm calling a progressive approach only compared to how it's traditionally used. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually used, my, my practice is the way it was really intended, which is very individualized, and it is looking at gap skills, and it is most certainly looking at student strengths. I mean, that was a lot of what the whole analysis of how we be <laughs> um, was all about. So um, where I'm trying to sort of bridge, bridge the gap is um, helping schools to, you know, really see it from that approach. And I'm more and more often being called in for students that um, don't have a, an identified diagnosis, um, and we're trying to call them emotionally disturbed, and we can't call them that when we haven't even done sort of the most basic 
approaches of discussion and collaboration around problem solving. So um, when I saw these regular calls, I really just wanted to call in and, you know, thank you, first of all, for all the work you're doing and listen in on, on what's working um, and any recommendations you have, particularly with approaching um, administration um, around the model um, or around, again, just more of a collaborative approach in general um, would be great. <laughs> Who wants to take it on? <laughs> Boy, you've stumped them. <laughs> no, I was just eating a cookie politely. <laughs> this is not a group that usually has nothing to say. No, um, wow. I always like to let well, them I'm, go I'm, first. I'm I'm thinking about the technical end of ABA because I'm not as trained in it as I'd, as I'd like to be, so I want to be careful about what I say, Ross. Mm. Um, Got it. So I, I, well, it's not really that I don't have thoughts. It's just more about... You know, thinking about that, one thing I have seen happen is is we had a, a really good uh, a guy who was really good with uh, um, ABA, and he was working with a student with behavioral challenges and got really into collecting the data about the, the 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, mm. 40 seconds, up to a minute and a half before any time the kid had an episode. And what that helped us yeah. to do was to understand what was triggering him and it helped us to be more specific about the plan B questions about the concerns because um, he, he just had so much data. So sometimes that information is super helpful to get kind of some facts. Um, yeah, but I think it's I, the I, way that you use it. Right. Go, Nina, I was go. Gonna say, and I think it's helpful when, when we can collaborate around the data um, and when it's part of a discussion point as opposed to maybe a conclusion. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times data is like, here's the conclusion. The data shows us this. This is what it indicates. And based on that, we're going to do this. And it sort of, not always, but sometimes takes out that human discussion around the behavior and often misses those qualitative data pieces, um, like what the student thinks and, um, and all of that. So um, I agree. I mean, again, it's, it's, a, it's an effective, it's a science for a reason and it's effective, but there's the how to do it. And I think the demands that are coming out right now are much more complex than just what we can fit on a graph. Um, and it requires a lot more of this discussion and collaborative approach. So, Yeah, I would agree. I, we have quite a few ABA um, support workers in our school. And what I've found is because it is very much homeschool um, collaborative consultation, it's really important to have the parents on the same side that you're working on at the school level. So it, it's, again, all about that talking in that relationship that you have not only with um, your teachers but with the parents and with the child. And it, it is a pretty set program. I know here in BC, anyways, we have um, a pretty set program on collecting the data and what the data means. And, and um, it, it, it's an interesting set. You can have, like with all people, we have an ABA worker who's absolutely outstanding and does that mm. consultative piece with everyone, like with me and with the parents and with the child. And then we have other ones that just follow the program, and we often don't even know what's going on except we're being told, you know, this and this has happened. And we do have a lot more outbursts, I would say, um, explosive behavior with those children than we do with the one who is in constant communication. So I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one. But I think collaboratively, just like with CPS, it needs to be done homeschool as well as 
with a child. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, don't don't you yeah. think that so often it's it's just as much the energy with which something is done as it is the yes. uh, the mm-hmm. tone, the vibe. I mean, the anyway. Nina, I didn't mean to. I want to hear what you think about no. this. No, I just I'm very I agree with, with with what you're saying. I just think that um, that remaining curious when working with the children and um, you, you know using if you're using ABA whatever approach, be, being curious and involving the child. I just have seen so many reports and approaches and data without mm-hmm. ever just asking the child what you know what's going on, and it's just so. Um, it's really interesting to me just to see that that one little simple step of actually sitting down and even you know i it seems like that's kind of the trend sometimes like even huge um you know psychological or neuropsych reports where it's like well the you know you didn't even you didn't even talk to the kid you know like mm-hmm. um so i just think bringing that back to um even those um, sitting down with a child and collaborating and figuring out what what is the child's percep- perspective and what is the child's concern is so powerful to do, but it's often not what uh, professionals first think of doing. So uh, I think it's great that you are bringing it back to that collaboration and remaining curious about what's really going on and going you know beyond just the surface of what it might. You know, description of behavior, um, rewinding mm-hmm. that tape to go. What's you know what's way before we see the challenging um, behavior. So I think it can mm-hmm. be done when when you have that perspective for sure. And I think um, as an administrator, I think one of your questions was around administration, and I think mm-hmm. having the administration on side makes a huge difference in being able to do CPS. Um, just effectively. I know for me, a lot of times my colleagues will say, oh, the ABA worker just comes in and tells me this is what they're doing or here's a report and I don't really get involved. But I I think it's so important to be involved. And I know um, I do have CPS conversations with my students. I I have a grade five student who has an ABA worker and I had a CPS conversation with him just two weeks ago and the mm-hmm. ABA worker was going, oh, well, that's not what we do. And I said, well, I just, I, I personally would just like to find out what's going on for him. Mm-hmm. And when he did wind up telling us what was going on, it was totally different than mm-hmm. what the ABA worker thought. And, and But that's the same with everybody. Like I find that with all children. If, if we're hypothesizing and theorizing or, or going from a program, we're not really giving uh, an opportunity to open our minds and, and listen to the child. So, for example, this one child had a huge outburst, and he's big, and he's he can get really violent in in math class. And really, all he wanted to do, and I don't know whether I told um, you guys this before, but all he wanted to do is play with counters, and he wanted to do that before the math class began. So when mm. we did that, but we didn't, you know, we didn't know that until we asked him. So I so I just simple. think it, it was so yeah. simple. Mm-hmm. But I think getting your administration on on sort of on board with it is is really key to making mm-hmm. things work. But that's yeah. that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the other Thank thing you. I would say is that I know lots of folks who are BCBAs or otherwise trained in ABA. They mm-hmm. are very different. Um, mm-hmm. Some take a somewhat more orthodox approach to things might be the best way that I would put it. Some practice what I would call a more flexible form of ABA. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the principles apply. But 
I'm writing an article right now with a BCBA about how CPS and ABA converge and diverge. And Excellent. what I'm coming up with is that um, no matter what kind of ABA the person is practicing, and I'd love to hear from our caller about whether she thinks that this is accurate, one big difference is that in CPS, you are not proceeding forward without input from the kid. And you are not agreeing on a solution or moving forward with a solution without the input of the kid. And I find that there are many people who practice ABA, whether they are more orthodox or not, who are coming in, doing their analysis of the kid's behavior, charting things, quantifying things, and then really without ever talking to the kid about what's really going on, and this is a bit of a repetition of what others have said, coming up with a plan. No input mm-hmm. from the kid on either what's going on or on what potential solutions could be put into play to solve it. Mm-hmm. And that's a very big difference. Um, the other big difference, of course, is that in ABA, people tend to be primarily focused on behavior. That's the B part. In CPS, we are primarily focused on the problems that are causing those behaviors and solving them. Mm-hmm. And so um, while there are ABA folks who are real keen on CPS and think it fits perfectly within C- uh, ABA and feel that we're really just talking slightly different languages here, mm-hmm. I find mm-hmm. that there are also many a people, ABA people who would break out in hives at the thought of doing CPS, <laughs> asking a kid what his concerns are, coming up with a solution right. collaboratively and paying attention mm-hmm. to something besides behavior. Mm-hmm. By the yes, way, one last the little same. thought. Go ahead. Well, one last little thought as it relates to charting. I was sitting in a meeting about a year ago, and I was being presented as, I think this was an IEP meeting, maybe a sort of a how's this kid doing meeting. And the um, person had, uh, the, the ABA person had done lots of charts and quantified lots of things. And what was fascinating is um, the charts, the graphs, the, all showed that the kid was heading in the wrong direction. And the summary of the charts from the person who had been doing them was that he was doing great. And my first thought was, well, now wait a second. If you're going to put all that time into quantifying and counting and charting, um, you can't come in here and tell us that what's really going on is completely different than what the data are telling us. You either believe in the data or you don't believe in the data. Um, But if that's what we're doing with the data, it's just basically coming up with our own conclusion irrespective of what the data are telling us, then I don't really see the point in putting on all that time into collecting the data. I'd love to hear what our caller thinks of all of that. Well, yes, certainly with the data piece, um, I, you know, I see that a lot, and it's it's one of the reasons. I mean, I, you know, when I write, really only author positive behavior support plans. I don't think the behavior intervention plan language is even fitting because we need to do more than intervene. We need to support students. So I don't. I don't even talk that language anymore, but most district, you know, formats are functional behavior assessments mm-hmm. and behavior intervention plans. Um, and so in terms of that data piece, I often find that, that that is the case, that, you know, a lot of times the data is disconnected from the bigger mm-hmm. picture. We're either not looking for the right things 
or we're counting the right things, but we're not analyzing them. So we're not linking that to a conclusion or to another question. I mean, often we're not, it's not really a process where it's driven by questions, it's driven by answers. So I feel like that leaves a whole lot out because again, they'll come saying, well, here's the data, this is the conclusion, but really that should have only led you to the next question in what I consider a much bigger process. Um, and all of these are reasons why I did not become a board-certified behavior analyst <laughs> because I saw, you know, I've been in the field over 20 years, so I've lived through the wave of, you know, when we didn't have BCBAs prominent in the field and when we decided, yes, this is going to be the new gold standard, and I could see them early coming out of very well-known universities, and they were beautiful graphs, but they couldn't tell me what Johnny liked to play with. You know, they couldn't tell me when Johnny was going to have a snack. Like, there was no bigger picture. And I thought, if we're going to isolate this science so much, this is not what the grandfathers were asking us to do. They were asking us to use the science to help people be more productive in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I've had to find a way to just contribute in, in a different um, approach. And, you know, it leaves a lot of opportunities out because that, that um, credential has now, you know, driven a lot of services. But at the same time, um, it's, it's proving to be very challenging in a lot of situations. I spoke with attorneys um, in a different state a few months ago, and they said they were six days in litigation over that same issue that even though the BCBA had authored the plan, the plan was not working, and the district didn't want to let that go. They were like, no, she's, she has the stamp of approval. Anything she does, oh and her God. graphs are right. <laughs> and it was a disaster, you know? It was a disaster. So the behaviors, if they don't, if we don't have a more happy, engaging person, then the behavior plan has not worked, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of resistance in that field to just accept to accept what the yeah. reality is and to include the child, you know, it's yeah. so, um, so it's hard, but I, I appreciate all the feedback. And I, I do think, again, a lot of people are well-meaning for it. And it's just, we get stuck in what we consider to be our practice and it gets hard to shift out of that. And, you know, we're it now into blind us. season. So that, that makes it difficult too, because behavior is taking a backseat to every standardized test that's ever been created. Um, so <laughs> that gets challenging. But. Before we let you go, one last question. What do you think of this notion that almost uh, how much do enlightened applied behavior analysts like yourself gather information from the horse's mouth, the kid, and how mm -hmm. often is the kid being involved in the solution? In my experience, it's rare, irrespective of the person who's doing ABA. What's been your experience? Um, my personal experience is it's mixed. Um, and again, so I mean, in, in reading and, and hearing more from you, I, I need to even do it more. But I do have a lot of administration that will say to me, I love that you involve the child. I love that you involve the parents. I mean, I involve parents, grandparents. I go to aftercare, homes, you know, whatever, whatever the whole picture is, is what I want to delve into. So I definitely do the observing of students and sometimes more engagement and sometimes more questioning, depending on age and depending on the crisis of the situation. Unfortunately, I'm seeing an incredible amount 
of what they call processing around behavior, but it creates a very slippery slope of we're teaching children that we're only going to talk about crisis and challenges. So there are some situations, and again, I go in sort of when they've tried everything else and they're afraid of what's going to happen next. And sometimes the students I feel are just so not present to another discussion about behavior because it's been so beat to death already. Um, so sometimes I have to sort of put the pieces together and say, let's try this. And then on day one of trying it, talk with the student and it completely can turn around. So, um, but I see, but in terms of other, I don't see uh, a lot of colleagues using that, you know, um, certainly for older, for definitely for late elementary, middle school, I won't even touch an approach or a plan until I talk with the, the student themselves. But in other situations, sometimes it's more of the parents or it's watching, it's teachers. It's still sort of drilling down those, those questions, um, but not always directly with the student. Um, so that's something that I need to look at a little bit more. But um, I think it's the collaborative approach in general um, is, is more, more the way to go than when, what I'm seeing, definitely. Um, and I'm just in a unique situation um, as a consultant that, again, by the time I go in, it's kind of whatever I ask for or suggest, it's usually received. Um, but I would love to have it more of people sharing their ideas. It's just often not the case, you know. Um, their ideas have either been used so much that they're, they're failing <laughs> or they're just beyond frustrated and there's nothing left that they have, you know. So, um, yeah. Yeah. We really appreciate you calling in. We um, yeah. love these kinds of dialogues. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't like being dismissive of any um, way of doing things. I just find it impossible to solve problems with a kid without getting the kid's concern or perspective and without mm. getting the kid's sign-off and participation in the solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, of course, I've got a certain point of view myself. Yeah, yeah but that point of view is, is informed by seeing kids engage who hadn't previously engaged. So, I mean, I, I've seen you sit in my office and work with a kid around a very specific problem. And the amount of information that you pulled out of the, the student themselves, I'm talking about a second grader, was unbelievable. It took a long time and it took a considerable skill, but it was fascinating to watch. And I think that that's the part that causes that passion around this particular model is that it, it's built on relationships, not just analysis and, and implementation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Data to me is cold. I, I don't even like to talk about data with education anymore. What I like to talk about is information. Mm -hmm. So there's multiple modes of information. So I, I don't mind looking at information that's numerical, I don't mind looking at information that's based on observation and, and very carefully planned um, gathering, but I also like to have information that's human, and I, I don't mm -hmm. think that we should ever give up one for the other. Mm -hmm. We shall have to find a way to keep the dialogue between behavior analysts and CPS adherents going. I don't think that the gap is as wide as it seems. Um, if we're only talking different languages, that would be great. But if we're talking about excluding kids 
from the process of solving the problems that affect their lives, that's a bit of a bigger gap. All right. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. And can I ask where I'd find the article? Will be on the on the site. The, the article, article will be announced on, on the website. Media. Yeah, as soon as it comes okay. out, we're in the process of writing it. But I, I think Great. we will probably post the manuscript even before it gets published. Wonderful. Yeah. Great. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for calling in. All right. Bye-bye. And on that note, you all, we are done for the summer. I'm betting that um, most of you wish that you were done for the summer, or maybe not, but as it relates <laughs> to this radio program, uh, this is it for us for the school year. But um, I'll be in touch with you over the summer to uh, gauge whether you want to do this again next year. I'm certainly up for it. In the meantime, I want to thank you all for doing this again. I think um, I get continuous positive feedback on people who listen to this program, and people really find it to be valuable. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. And have a great summer, even though summer is not so near. (laughs) You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.